everybody, and welcome into a special bonus episode of the Rick and Nick Show. My name is Eric Ruby. Nick, unfortunately, not able to be with us today, but joining me via Zoom is Saguaro High School basketball head coach, Lucas Ramirez. Coach Ramirez, always great to have you on. We've had you on a couple of shows before on different shows that I've done, but the reason that we have you on today is that we just want to talk last dance. Now, we've been talking about it, everybody's been talking about it for the last five weeks when it's been you know, pretty much the talk of all sports world, but what we're going to do is we're going to go episode by episode, give you a little recap, talk about what we thought about it and what it kind of means. And now that we've had time to reflect and see it as a whole and really let it sink in, if there's anything that we've thought of or has that come to mind that isn't an instant reaction, something that we really sat on. So first and foremost, Coach Ramirez, how are you doing, man? Did you enjoy the last dance? Like overall overarching take, did you enjoy it? Did you like it? Did you want more? Did you want less? What were your thoughts? Yeah, I'm doing good. Thanks for having me. It's always great chopping it up with you. Um, loved it. Absolutely loved it. You know, I think as a society, we, we needed that uh, that little sports uh, bug. And, you know, every Sunday the past couple of weeks has just been awesome. I mean, I feel like every episode it just flew by. Um, you know, I think great for a lot of people to be reminded about who Michael Jordan was, is, uh, you know, Myself personally, I have, you know, very little memories of, of, of him playing in Chicago. I, I remember watching him in Washington. Um, but for me, Jordan was the reason I, I fell in love with basketball. And, you know, growing up watching all those VHSs that they put together throughout the years. And, and you know, I, I wore those things out. Um, so I'm a big Jordan guy. So for me, it was, it was phenomenal to see some things that uh, – I've seen before, hear some things that I haven't heard before and, and just further adds to the, his legacy and, and his career. The only thing I wish that they did is I wish they had uh, more footage, more interviews. <laughs> uh, yeah. you know, I, I, I'm curious to see what they cut out uh, uh, and, and, and things of that nature. And, and I wouldn't have mind a, a bonus episode of talking about the uh, Wizards days for him as well. Yeah, I think the the Wizards, I, I understand why they left that out because they kind of could. Like the story kind of lined up to where it was not a huge deal if they didn't talk about it. Um, I would have liked to, you know, hear about a little bit about that. I was kind of hoping that maybe they would do like an uncut uh, post of the interview, or like like one of Michael's interviews or something, you know, really just hear him talk because he's not somebody that like comes out into the public and talks really ever. So like that's why I also think this was like a huge thing is because it is – it is rare to hear Mike come out and talk about anything, let alone his entire career. How did you feel about the two episodes of Sunday? Because I personally think they could have stretched this out for 10 weeks. I think we all would have been perfectly content with an hour a week, but they gave us two, which I think also had its, its benefits. So did you like that? Did you maybe want it to last longer, or were you happy with kind of the pacing of it? Uh, well, selfishly, I liked having the two hours a night, you know, every Sunday. But, I, I mean, it would have been nice to have it be stretched out even more. I mean, there's so much more they could have, uh, you know, dove into as well. And, and I mean, there's a lot of different things throughout, you know, his, his career in Chicago, they could have probably spent more time on and, you know, I'm, I'm sure they probably did. And, and of course it being a Jordan doc, you know, he had the final say of oh, yeah. what was in there and what wasn't. And that's no secret. I mean, it was painted to uh, his benefit, but I do think that it was nice to see him one speak because he rarely does that. And he's doing it, I think, a little more and more the older he gets, um, maybe for his selfish factor of, of wanting to remind the world of who he was. 
but uh, it was good to see him talk about certain things that he hadn't talked about, you know, him being, you know, expressing his political opinions, uh, you know, the gambling uh, factors of his life, his father's death, um, him being emotional too, showing some emotion. You know, I think that surprised a lot of people. It surprised me. Um, I think that was some of the more powerful moments of the whole series was him getting so emotional talking about just his will to win and pushing his teammates and why he was the way he was, um, you know, and you could tell it kind of bothered him a little bit. Like it does bother him a little bit that some people might not view him to be a nice person or, or a good person. And yeah, um, <laughs> yeah. Just, just him explaining all that, you know, was, was, was very interesting to see. I, um, I actually just put out a video today on my Twitter account. Um, I've been doing like these daily sports take videos and off of, based off people's questions that they asked me on Twitter. And one of the questions was after seeing how Michael pushed his teammates is his case for goat better. And personally, like, I don't think so. I'm, I'm one of the people who I take nothing away from Mike on the court at all. I, I mean, he's absolutely earned and deserved everything that he's done. Like he deserves to be talked about the way that he does. He, he's truly incredible. When it comes to off the court though, I think he gets a pass for a lot of things. And what I think my biggest problem is with the overarching story of Michael Jordan is that like him being this bully in in a sense was always a good thing. Not saying that like it didn't work with some teammates. I guess my thing is like a true leader adapts to the men that he's leading. And it seems like it was the other way around. And again, Michael found the best way to get the best out of Michael. And that was the best way to win games. And that was the best way to do what he had to do because he was so great. And more power to him. I never would want him to change that. But when it comes to like coaching somebody, like maybe a Scott Burrell, like Scott Burrell, does he seem like the type of person to respond to negative reinforcement? No, he just seems like a happy-go-lucky guy. And I don't like how now we, we intertwine like, kind of being rude to your teammates, which is necessary sometimes. I'm sure you've seen it coaching basketball and being around basketball forever. You need to be upfront with your teammates sometimes. It's definitely like a necessary thing, but it's not an all the time thing. And yes, he gets a pass because he's Michael Jordan, but I wouldn't like, I don't like when people use that as like a a pro argument for him or like add it up. I don't think it takes away from anything when it comes to his goat and on the court, but I just, I wouldn't say that's like, oh, that's how you win. That's the only way to win. I think that LeBron has kind of showed and a lot of other leaders and a lot of other players have shown like you don't have to be that type of person to win. It's one of the ways that you can win. He's obviously shown that it works and it works for him, which is awesome. But a lot of these guys were not the biggest fan of Mike and we've gotten a lot of that reaction. We could talk about it later when we get to like the Horace Grant episode because he's been extremely vocal. I know Scottie Pippen has come out. So any last kind of like overarching thoughts before we get into episode to episode personally, I think that, you know, it was great. We got to expand on a lot of topics, but I wouldn't necessarily say I learned a lot. And I guess I might be in the minority for my age group just because I've done like so much research and I've, I've kind of, you know, really taken into that 90s era of basketball and like learned so much from it that I know a lot of people around my age, I'm, I'm 21, a lot of people kind of in college right now don't uh, understand that. But personally, I, I wish they could have had a little bit more of a deep dive or, or something of that nature when it comes to something that wasn't a big topic, something kind of different, which we got in like bits and pieces. I just kind of wish I was throwing a, a bigger bone with that. But I mean, it was a great entertainment experience. Um, I, I don't know if I'd call it a documentary, but it was incredible storytelling. Um, yeah. From a storytelling point of view, it was, it was 
superb. Um, so any other overarching themes that, you know, struck you, any talking points, and then we can kind of go episode by episode and, and get this rolling. Yeah, no, I mean, I agree with you going back to, you know, people talking about how his demeanor with his teammates or how he interacted with his teammates. I mean, it, 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 it doesn't add, in my opinion, to, it doesn't solidify him in the goat conversation. Um, mm-hmm. I think it just, it, it just adds to his, his, uh, his story. That's like the way the he was, mm-hmm. the way he operated. And you see a lot of guys who, who have been like that. I mean, obviously Kobe, uh, modeled his whole career after him. Um, and Kobe was that way in, 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 in some aspects, but like you said, I mean, there's different, so many ways that you can lead, whether you're coaching or whether you're, you're playing on the floor and you're, you know, the leader of the team. There's not one way to do it, um, but hey, it worked for him. Um, it wouldn't work for everybody, uh, and of course, there's some teammates that that probably, and we'll get into this later. But you know, the Pippins, the Horace Grants, the Will Purdue's, you name it. You know, those guys probably in the moment did not like him, but then maybe reflecting on it, they're like, you know what? We won because of it. Mm-hmm. It's not the way I agree with it, but it worked. Um, so it's interesting to to hear their perspective after the fact. But at the end of the day, just great storytelling and and um, a lot to unpack. Yeah. Okay. I'm gonna I'm gonna ask actually one more thing before we get into it because something just popped into mind. Being a coach yourself, and you know, you know, you've been around the coaching circuit for the last couple of years, and you've played and and everything. But how would you maybe deal with a player like like Mike? Would you enjoy having somebody with that kind of dog in them or or would you maybe try to restrain it a little bit just from a like a, a pure coach's perspective oh man well <laughs> if i ever have a player like a michael jordan then god bless me i, mean, <laughs> I, I i'm kind of talking like mentally the like they're 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 let's say they're uh, the best player on the team but you know maybe they're not like michael jordan level but they're the best player on the team and they do have kind of that that leadership style would would that be something that you feed into maybe, or do you think it would be something that you try to harness and control? Something that you got to approach carefully. You know, I mean, I think if, I think you got to give and take a little bit with, you know, when you're coaching your players and, and I think it's important to, to have your players lead, you know, but you have to make sure that it's, it's, it's working for the team. You know, I mean, you'll be able to tell right away if it's able to work or not. Um, but, uh, but yeah, I mean, that's a, a really good question. I mean, we can revisit it at the end. We'll, we'll, we'll have you think about it. I kind of <laughs> dropped that on the spot with you. So let's, <laughs> let's come into episode one. This is uh, like the, the origin story of Michael Jordan being from North Carolina, kind of his journey to get to UNC, talking about his growth there. I think it was James Worthy, who was a junior or a senior when Mike was a freshman, said that he was the best player on the team. James Worthy calling himself the best player, but then within three weeks, Michael was the best player on the team. And then he makes his transition to the NBA, picked third overall by the Bulls. And from there on, the Bulls were not that great from the beginning. So this kind of had the, the beginning tension, laying the groundwork of the Michael Jordan kind of tension between Jerry Krause and the Bulls when it comes to his playing, his injuries, being held off the court, things of that nature. But more or less the origin story, episode one. I think the big quote from this was the traveling cocaine circus that uh, MJ said the Bulls were. Um, I think that that wasn't just the Chicago Bulls. 
I want to um, censor his document on the uh, cocaine circus that was the, the mid-80s Bulls. <laughs> and I think the funniest thing is Michael Jordan being like, oh, yeah, it was all of them, and I was in my room reading. It's like this is the Michael Jordan who <laughs> who later in his career we show and enjoys a vice or two. So um, I I was definitely in, intrigued by that. I didn't, I didn't know. That was definitely something where I learned the most was in the first couple of episodes where I talked about those, those 80s Bulls. Um, and kind of the struggles that they had before Jordan came in, how like the Bulls were underselling the indoor soccer team uh, that was at that stadium. That was like, that was probably one of my biggest woe moments is how much he transformed the Bulls like before and after. Yeah, people completely forget, and myself included, like life pre-Jordan, you know, in the, the early 80s, um, you know, late 70s, it was rough. You know, the last time they had, uh, a lot of good success was, you know, late 60s, early 70s. Um, you know, they had some good players, you know, throughout the years there. You know, they had uh, uh, Jerry Sloan, rest in peace, um, you know, Norm Van Leer and some guys like that, but Artis Gilmore. But, yeah, they had a, a – a, I mean, they were one of the worst teams in the league. Obviously, you know, they were so high in the lottery and, and um, for a couple of years. Um, but, yeah, I mean, it just showed that, Jordan coming in, being the best player right away, um, having to fight that uphill battle, change the culture, if you will, and, and uh, you know, having a couple coaches stand all back and then go, going to Doug Collins, um, you know, and Doug, I might be jumping ahead in an episode here, but, but you know. Yeah. Collins. And we're going to be jumping around in general well, yeah. just because the timeline itself in, in all of the all of the episodes yeah. is jumping back and forth too. So we're going to try our best to go episode by episode, but jump around freely because this is going to be like a just a free-flowing co- topic. If we come upon something, then we come upon it. Yeah. So, yeah, it was interesting to see him kind of go through just the trials and tribulations. I mean, very similar, quite frankly, if you look at the, the career arc of LeBron James. I mean, LeBron's first mm-hmm. couple of years, you know, not the greatest teams. Um, but LeBron had to keep fighting to get over that hump to find a way to, you know, win a championship and, and, mm. um, you know, same with Jordan his first couple of years, you know, he waited a couple of years to, to get Scotty and get those guys to, to help them get over the hump. So, um, it was really interesting. I loved hearing from Roy Williams, uh, mm. who was an assistant on, on the staff for Dean Smith in North Carolina. Um, who played a big part in recruiting him, um, and just kind of hearing his his days at Carolina. Obviously, those teams were really really good. Um, hearing from James Worthy, uh, you know that was fascinating. But 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 really, what struck me too, and and this has been out there for a while. You know, Jordan said this multiple times. But when he hit that shot, you know, against Georgetown, he went from from Mike Jordan to Michael Jordan, and, and that from a national perspective, but also too, on top of that, uh, I think just his self-confidence as well, you know, that gave him the confidence to be like, all right, like I hit a shot, national stage, I'm the man. Um, and also too, pe- people forget that he stayed another year uh, at Carolina after that. And, and, you know, a lot of people just kind of think, oh, he, he hit the shot and then he went to the NBA. You know, he had one more year in college um, to develop even more. And, and I mean, you can't uh, sleep on the fact of just the impact playing at Carolina, you know, playing for Dean Smith um, had on him and just really critical in his development. 
that that Roy Williams quote where it was like Michael Jordan's the only player I've ever seen who was able to turn it off and on and he never freaking turned it off I mean what a great quote like what a like out of all the quotes that's one that kind of sticks word for word in my head it's like even in college this guy was just getting better and getting better I and yeah you know I think they might have glossed over a little bit of the 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 bumps that Jordan went through the early bowls um and I, again that's just because it comes through Jordan's eyes I think I think your comparison to LeBron is a lot more similar than a lot of LeBron haters would like to say say because you know they they both really didn't have success in the playoffs it's just you know LeBron was able to go a little bit farther which is actually ended up hurting his his argument because he got that finals loss so early in his career as well Jordan really struggled in that first round of the playoffs and I mean they showed it like when he scored 60 against the Celtics in the first round and like they still lost that series and, and everything like that. I I think they might've glossed over it a little bit, but again, you know, it's, it's the Michael Jordan documentary. What do you expect? And then you get to episode two. This is in my opinion, the Scotty Pippen episode. This is really where like he gave Pippen his light. Um, I know that Scotty came out and said that he wasn't happy about the way he was portrayed. And a lot of people are pointing to this episode, like, oh man, you were portrayed as like the best second man ever. And Jordan said he could never win without you. But then as the documentary goes on, there are kind of these slight jabs at Pippen. But for this, I think it was great because I think there's like a clear divide between some people. It's like either you know that Pippen's like one of the best players of all time or you just have no clue how good he was. I feel like there's no in between. So I was really happy that they gave him his due shine, like a full episode pretty much, like an hour of his non-traditional route to the league, which actually I do want to talk to you about because you are a huge advocate for JUCO, D2, D3 colleges, and, and you know, not taking that traditional, oh, got this big D1 blue blood school and, you know, finding and working your way to the league. And we could talk about that with Steve Kerr later as well. Um, what did you think about Pippen's story? Like he was trying to be the manager, hit a growth spurt, was actually able to hoop. And, you know, not only turns into a great forward, really revolutionizes the game with being a forward playmaker that eventually fits into the triangle. So what, what do you feel about the story of Scottie Pippen? What resonates with you? What did you take away from this episode? Yeah, I, mean, I think it's a really good reminder to people that, you know, he's one of the best, you know, probably one of the best duos ever, you could argue. And, and just his story, I mean, he went to Central Arkansas, uh, you know, and, and at the time was an NAI school. You know, now it's a Division One school. But, um, I mean, he, he is just a great example of you go where it's a good fit or where it works out. I mean, shoot, for him, it wasn't even a fit. It was, I want to be a manager. And then, uh, you know, grew, obviously, and, and – went to have a, a really great college career at Central Arkansas. And, and um, but it just shows that wherever you go, if, if, if you do your job and you do it well, you know, there's a place for you at the next level, whether it's at the NBA or overseas. And um, it was really great to have those episodes that, that really featured, whether it was Scotty or Dennis, uh, or even, you know, Steve Kerr had his part in one of the episodes. So um, really good to, to hear his upbringing I think it was a good reminder for a lot of people um but for me I always enjoyed always have enjoyed the the uh story of Scotty Pippen it's a great story and he does get a bad rap I think not even just in this documentary I think just overall people forget how good of a career he had obviously we saw that with even the year Jordan was gone um I mean 
there was the Ku coach last shot controversy. Right. Yeah. And which will we'll stay get to with that him forever. Too, yeah. But but I mean, people forget. I mean, he even at the end of his career, you know, he went to Houston for one year, had a solid year, went to Portland for a couple of years and was on a Portland team that, you know, many people argue got robbed by the referees against the Lakers. And that was a really good team. And he was a, he was a huge piece of that team. And um, so even without Jordan, he had a really good career. You know, I, I personally believe, you know, he's a hall of famer, I, you know, oh, top player of all time. I don't know where to rank him. I'm not going to get into the ranking, but he's up there. Um, and, just a really good story overall. And I think what shocked a lot of people was and it caused controversy, right? On social media that night was his contracts and, and, you know, Krauss not giving him mm. his due diligence, but at the same time, he took a contract at the time, which mm. was best for him and his family. And, and, you know, and also people forget too, it failed to be mentioned in the uh, documentary. He got paid pretty well, his last oh, couple yeah. contracts and, he ended his career in Chicago in 2003 or four, I believe. And then he was very unhealthy at that point. Um, but he ended it in Chicago and that last contract that, that they gave him uh, was a lot more than he probably should have gotten. So it kind of maybe was that thanks for everything, um, you know, come back home and end it uh, in Chicago. But um overall just a really good good story and career he had yeah this was definitely the the we got some hints of some jerry Krause hate and some management hate in episode one but episode two is really really came to fruition i mean it was scotty pippen yelling at Krause on the bus um there was a lot of moments where it was like oh man like there was legitimate hatred here and you you can kind of understand it i mean scotty wasn't even one of the five top paid players on his team and you're you're being talked about as one of the greatest players in the league. It sucks, but unfortunately, yeah, you signed that contract. And Kraus, Kraus is so interesting because he was painted in such a bad light, but he might be the biggest victim of the Jordan, the, this documentary being purely through Jordan's eyes because I read an excerpt or it was like an article that was an excerpt from his book that talked about the end of that 1997-1998 season when everybody left after that. He was detailing how he made sure he took care of every single person that left. He knew that Scottie Pippen and Dennis Rodman's health was deteriorating, but he kept, like, he kept it in the war room. He didn't let anybody know. So Pippen went out and got this huge contract. People forget Rodman really only played, like I think it was like 30 or 40 games after he left the Bulls. Um, and so like he kept on the download so this guy could get paid. He went to Steve Kerr and Luke Longley and said, Hey, we are not going to match. Like we're not going to pay. So whatever, whatever the best offer you get is don't play around with it. Go and take it. Like that's not something that every GM would do. So I think it was really interesting to see purely the player's perspective of Jerry Krause, because a lot of times he could be painted as the villain, but he was doing what was best for the team. He built those championship teams. So I thought that that was a really weird dynamic because usually if you look at all the successful teams nowadays, like the, let's look at the Warriors, there's pretty much so much cohesion where there's so much trust between the players and the front office where they both trust each other to just do what they do. And it works out. So to see that there was so much inner turmoil and so much inner fighting when it comes between the players and the management, but they were still somehow able to like build the foundation at this point to create a dynasty, some, a, a team that would go on and three-peat twice. I mean, that's, that was truly incredible for me. That was another thing that I guess I knew a little bit about, but I didn't know that much about. So I was really happy that they highlighted that. I did feel bad that, like, it was just – they laid it on so thick with Jerry Krause. And he's not around to defend himself. 
And so I felt like it might have been a little bit too thick, but I think it accurately portrayed how Jordan and Pippen felt. So I felt like that was a, a fair way to include it. Yeah, I mean, completely their perspective. At the end of the day, you can't knock what he built. I mean, drafting Jordan, uh, you know, from there you got uh, bringing in Pippen, which was controversial because – in that same process, same timeline, you know, you're getting rid of Michael Jordan's guy, probably his closest guy that he's still friends with to this day in Charles Oakley. Um, and, and then of course, bringing in Tony Kukoc, which pissed off, uh, you know, Pippen mm-hmm. and Jordan, which is, you know, different episode, the Olympics and all that. Um, and then making subtle, like himself cross, you know, making jabs, you know, organizations when, you know, win championships. Right. Uh, and, and, but at the end of the day, he's not wrong. I mean, organizations do, you look at all the great teams that have won in recent memory. Uh, I mean, even historically you have Celtics, Bulls, Yankees. Uh, uh, I mean, you name it, the, the Spurs in recent memory, the Warriors in recent memory, uh, even college athletics from the top down, it's, it's a winning environment and you're going to do what you have to do to sustain that success. And, you can't discredit Kraft at all because up until the end of the 98, 99, sorry, 97, 98 season, they did a phenomenal job for a very long time. And and even after the fact, I think going into 99, 2000 uh, or somewhere around there, you know, Kraus was, was certain they were going to get Tim Duncan and they were going to get all these big name mm-hmm. free agents at the time. So he was working toward that. They couldn't get it done. And then his last couple of years in Chicago, obviously, uh, in the early 2000s, uh, the Bulls were one of the worst teams in the league. Um, but I don't think he wanted to see that drop off. But it is what it is. Um, but overall, I mean, Kraus did a phenomenal job. But it, it just goes to show, I mean, a lot of behind the scenes. And I'm sure there's a lot of stuff that we don't know or didn't see in the documentary that, that uh, led to even further tensions between them. Right. I mean, it's so weird because – I'm sure no matter what, behind the scenes, there's always going to be some sort of disagreement because the players obviously believe that the players are the most important. And then the management obviously believes that they're the most important. And I think that no matter what team you're in, that's going to kind of be the dynamic. I think the ones that work is where you have that mutual respect, like, okay, agree to disagree. Um, But I mean, you look at pretty much every championship team ever, like honestly, ever, their front office is at least competent. Maybe not like greatest of all time and they've lucked into something. Like maybe you luck into drafting Michael Jordan or something of that nature. But the reason why LeBron left the Cavs is management was bad. He comes back when he wins, the management is good. You know, they drafted Kyrie. You know, you trade for Kevin Love. Like the management was good. Like you, you don't find a team consistently winning without the, the front office being at least competent. I mean, you look at the Bulls now. Gar Pax, I think, just resigned or, or re renamed their position or moved their position within the organization. But part of the reason why the Bulls have still never fully recovered is because their front office has been really, really bad for almost over a decade now. If they didn't luck their way into D Rose, they'd be talked about so differently right now because D Rose brought that short stint of hope just, you know, a, a couple decades later, you know, just far enough away to really okay, they, it was his own era. They brought their own hope in, but people really don't realize that was only a couple of years. And other than those couple of years, the Bulls have been 
on the outside of the playoffs and not a great team for a majority of those seasons. So it just goes to show that it's not just players. It has to be everything. But, you know, I think nowadays, I don't know if you could have a relationship like Krause had. Like, that's just something I don't think the new NBA would be able to facilitate. Yeah, I mean, again, a lot of what they went through, a lot of what Jordan went through in his career if it was in the social media age of things, there'd be a lot of uh, uh, different opinions, probably just a lot of different perspectives. Um, with that being said, the media, I mean, all they talked about back then in the papers and on the, the sports center and all that, I mean, it was all Jordan all the time. Mm-hmm. And we saw that later on talking about his death and the gambling and this and the that. And so it's not that Jordan, I mean, Jordan lived in that small bubble that he could live in because the media was all over him and his his life um, and the Bulls as well, you know, going to the Jordan rules book that, that, uh, you know, Sam Smith put out there and it was a big topic of discussion. Um, so there's a lot of stuff that's out there, but in present day, yeah, things are different today in so many ways. Just, I mean, one, I think a big thing is just the social media piece. Um, but I mean, could it work today? You know, let's not get it twisted. There are tensions between front office and owners and players to this day. Um, maybe not to that dramatic of a scale. Maybe so. We don't know. But, you know, it happens everywhere. And you see it all the time. I mean, LeBron went through it. I mean, LeBron clearly was was um, frustrated that he could not get more capable pieces around him. So then he took his talents to South Beach like he famously did and had pieces around him. And guess what? Goes back to Cleveland, has pieces around him. So, um, yeah, it comes down to what's the organization going to put around their best players and, 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 you know, putting together the best team. And like you said, every, every team that wins, you know, there's that, that uh, uh, solid uh, camaraderie between the front office and ownership and coaching staff to, to put together the best team. and, and you know, yeah, I, I definitely think, you know, it's, it's, it's just a puzzle that you can't complete it with one piece. You need all these different pieces to come together to create that perfect picture. But let's move on. Episode three, this is pretty much universally recognized as the Dennis Rodman episode. Um, this is the one that included his wild midseason trip to Las Vegas um, and showed him kind of talking about how he approached rebounding and then that kind of coincided and went with the Bulls struggle to push past those late 80s early 90s Detroit Pistons um so it's kind of like the bad boy Pistons and the Dennis Rodman episode so we'll attack those in two different ways so Dennis Rodman I think the thing that struck me the most about this episode was Michael Jordan saying that Dennis Rodman was the smartest basketball player that he ever played with and seeing him break down how he approached rebounding and how he knew based off where the ball hit and how it was spinning, where the ball would go. I think, like, I knew that he did that, but until you really see him, like, explain it, you're like, wow. Because you kind of get caught up nowadays as Dennis Rodman is so far removed from basketball when it comes to just, like, the world's perspective. He's done – I mean, it's Dennis Rodman. He's done so many crazy things, but people forget. I mean, I don't think people forget, but I don't think people respect enough just truly how good of a role player he was. And I hate using the word role player because it's kind of used nowadays – almost as a slur as, as, as some sorts where it's like, oh, they're just, you're just a role player. You're just a role player. But role players are like extremely important. And he, important. he was like the ultimate pinnacle definition of like the perfect role player who did their job to like 150%. 
So I, I loved getting that deep dive into him and a little bit of his history as well. Yeah, he's one of my favorite players of all time, I think, in NBA history. I think he's the best rebounder of all time. Um, super smart. People don't realize how smart of a player he is. Well, I think a lot of people uh, think, oh, freak athlete, and which is really good at, at uh, being a good intimidator and being in the right spots. But when you saw him break down how he sought after every rebound, um, and then also, too, uh, there's a, uh, if you go on ESPN, it's on YouTube, I think, or you go on ESPN plus as well. They have one of those detail breakdown, uh, episodes where they break down some game film and Dennis Rodman's on there and he's, he's breaking down the triangle offense. And, uh, I think if people watch that, it'll surprise them of how much he, he just knows the triangle, knows the game. Uh, again, one of the smartest players to ever play. Uh, one of the best rebounders, uh, and and on top of that, just a very intriguing life story. There's that 30 for 30 on him as well that I recommend people watch, and it really dives deep into his his, his upbringing. It kind of shows you why he is the way he is. Um, you know, he was a key piece in those Detroit teams. I thought it was hilarious uh, the story of him going from Detroit, obviously brief stint in San Antonio, um, and then them trying to agree to get him to join the bulls. And he's like, I don't care. Like, <laughs> yeah, sure. I'll play here if you want. And so just a great overarching story of him, you know, obviously the end of his career was not that great. And he's, he's dealt with some, some personal things in his life, which last I, I read or heard, you know, he was doing pretty well with that, but, um, but yeah, overall, just one of the more fascinating, you know, characters in, in uh, sports history. And also too, at one point, I mean, he, I mean, rock star status, like he was the rock star of the NBA. And, and I mean, hey, you don't get, you don't get on, yeah. on NWO, like NWO people are like, no, oh, it's funny. It's wrestling. Like the NWO, if you were, if you were a member of the NWO, you were really out here. You weren't just some random dude. You were really out here. Yeah. So, so he, he, he just changed a lot, you know, just for the league. And, and uh, I mean, it's pretty crazy to think like, you know, Jordan was popular, but for a small period of time, I mean, Dennis was, was one a, you know, in terms of popularity in Chicago, in the league, just for fans, I think, and, and just all the antics that he brought. But at the same time, I think it was fascinating to see that, you know, only two coaches that he had were able to reach him, you know, Chuck Daly, that was a perspective of he was the father figure that he never had in his life um, and let him be him. And then, you know, I think the quote for, from the episode, someone asked him about Dennis Rodman and, and uh, you know, I think his, his response was you got to let a Mustang go or let your horses yeah. go or whatever it was. Um, and that's true. Cause Phil did that too. I mean, Phil let him be him, but then when, it came time to go win ball games. They could count on him. So there was that weird, we're going to let you do your thing. Um, but in return, you better do your job. And, and uh, you know, he did his job for the majority of his career when he was in Detroit, when he was in, in Chicago. And even when he was in San Antonio, he was a pretty productive player. That's when the antics started. And it was just not a good fit uh, in, in San Antonio. And, and, and he was the scapegoat. Uh, in many ways, when those San Antonio teams couldn't get past Houston in the Western Conference Finals, 
uh, or the playoffs. And, and, uh, but, but Dennis was productive in San Antonio too. And then at the end of his career, you know, small stints in LA that <laughs> lasted like 15 games and then 15 games in Dallas and, and then his career was over. But um, yeah, I mean, to me, it was one of the more fascinating episodes of the doc, just seeing the relationship that Dennis had with the players, the coaches. And also it was curious to see too that they really didn't have a relationship outside the basketball court. It was, we're going to do our job. We're going to do it well. We're going to play well off each other. But then once we leave, you know, we aren't going to hang out together. We aren't going to party together. Dennis is going to go to, you know, Vegas, do his thing, you know, while, while Scotty and, and Jordan, the rest of the Bulls go, you know, party somewhere else probably. Um, so it was interesting that, that they were able to be very cohesive as a team. Um, but then outside of the floor, they didn't have to be. Yeah, I, I, I definitely can see, <clears throat> like, it, it, it's strange to not see all these NBA players be friends. Like nowadays they're all friends, which I don't think is a bad thing, but like the, the league is, is riddled with, with just a ton of friendships, which is, which is fine. But I mean, even in the nineties, you could be the greatest team of all time and not really get along with a lot of the people besides when you're playing basketball. And I think that the greatest thing about like Phil, and I think even like about Michael is that they, they just kind of understood like, look, we will never understand this man as long as he continues to grab 20 rebounds every night, he could do whatever he wants. Like imagine if like the, the modern day Dennis Rodman, like Andre Drummond, somebody who just really purely focuses on rebounds. Like obviously they're not the same, especially personality wise, but like somebody who produces like that. Imagine if Andre Drummond in the middle of like the, the finals went and was on SmackDown. Like what? Yeah. It, it, that, it's not exactly not like, <laughs> yeah, it's, it, it's not exactly going to be like, you know, well, oh, wow, welcome and warm praise. It's going to be a pretty bad look for him. So it's just a testament to how really good Rodman was. And he was a part of those bad boy Pistons that, that they were talking about. Uh, and I, I did like how they highlighted how tough it was for Jordan to get past him uh, and a little bit of like, okay, you have to change your physicality. You have to go and do weightlifting and all of that. And so I, I really enjoyed, enjoyed that. And that kind of brings you to episode four. So episode four is when Phil Jackson kind of gets introduced to the mix. Uh, I, I didn't realize how close of a relationship Doug Collins, the coach before Phil Jackson and Michael Jordan had and how much Michael Jordan liked Doug Collins and how maybe weird it was and how there might've been some tension bringing Phil in because it was kind of like a Jerry Krause pull from out of nowhere. This guy's going to come in and replace stuff. Um, and, you know, I think that Phil, you know, he took over and, he's obviously one of the most mellow minds ever. And I don't think any other mind would work with that connect that, that, that trio of players. But I, I did like how they gave Phil his shine, how they, they gave him like his history too. I mean, he, he is so successful on the court and then in coaching as well. Like he's somebody that people talk about, Oh, look how many rings he has. Look how many rings he has. But ever since he's been in New York at the end of his career, he's kind of been painted a little bit loony. Uh, like you don't know what you're doing, this weird old man, like probably smoking peyote. Um, but he really, really is like one of the five most successful people in basketball history. It's, it's crazy. And I'm happy that he got his shine. Yeah. You know, it's interesting because obviously Jordan and, and Doug Collins were close and, and, you know, Jordan detailed that where he was like, Doug drew up our offensive schemes for me to score and do my thing. And obviously it was successful because Jordan was, you know, arguably top player in the league, best scorer, arguably, 
at that time in the late 80s and was getting all these individual accolades, but it wasn't leading to the ultimate goal. Um, and they always remained close. And yeah, it was controversial, you know, to, to, to get Doug, you know, kind of pushing him out and pushing the assistant, uh, you know, to the top seat. And, and, you know, Michael was transparent at first. He's like, uh, Phil want to take the ball out of my hands. Like, I didn't like that. But Jordan knew if we want to win, then we, we need to buy into this. And, and so, yeah, that was interesting. Um, you know, obviously Jordan and, and Doug Collins reunited in Washington at the end of his career. You know, Jordan hired him to be the coach for his last couple of years. So they were able to reunite. So they've always had a good relationship. And, and I think they think highly of each other. And Doug Collins always reminds you on broadcast that he coached Michael Jordan. Uh, and and he, he was a good coach in his own right throughout the history of his, his coaching career as well. Um, you know, there's a, a, a really good story that Doug Collins shared a couple of years back. Uh, he was sharing it on like Mike and Mike in the morning or something like that. And it was in uh, the Washington and they were playing some back-to-backs. Um, and, and at the end of a game, he pulled Michael. And, and uh, they're on the team playing. Jordan walks up to the front, sits next to Doug Collins. And, and I mean, this is like 40-year-old Jordan, 39, 40-year-old Jordan. Sits next to him and says, do you still believe in me? And, and you know, Doug Collins said, well, of course, Mike. Of course I believe in you. And, he, and anyway, story ends where Mike looks at Doug Collins and he's like, you should never doubt me. Like, I would not be playing today still if there was any doubt in me you know, not being able to uh, play it at the best I can. And, you know, Doug Collins went on to say they landed that night back in Washington at like 2 in the morning and at 5 a.m. You know, Michael Jordan was in the practice facility getting shots up, this, that, and the other. So he was just talking about their strong relationship and their trust for one another and, and believing in him. But back to Phil Jackson, though. Yeah, Phil is just one of the greats. I mean – I hate that that the you know recent history will will show the New York Knicks and him falling asleep at, at at you know workouts or pre-draft workouts whatever it was, but I mean what a leader of men just being able to coach guys to their strengths let let guys do their thing play you know be themselves because because he was himself you know through and through forget the suits the nice suits he wore in the, you know, the nineties and early two thousands and, and whatnot. Uh, I mean, he, he is, is, is just that, that, uh, you know, laid back, simple guy, but man, him and Tex winner and the triangle offense, I mean, just revolutionized obviously the nineties and, and heck it even worked a little bit, you know, with the Lakers, it, it wasn't the true triangle um, at times with them, but, but wow, just, such a good uh, leader, great player as well. People forget that. You know, obviously, I had to do research myself to see what a good player Phil Jackson was. And, I mean, it was good to see him get his due as well. And how about him coaching? Like, his coaching history, coaching in, like, a Filipino league where, like, the home team, if somebody got shot, it was, like, a common occurrence. Like, I mean, that was – that was, and to find footage from that too, I don't know how they did that. And – he was definitely like, he was that turning point because pre-fill, it was the Bulls can't get it done. You know, oh, they're losing to the Pistons. And 
Luckily for the Bulls, kind of that revolution, the Phil Jackson triangle revolution came with the Pistons aging. And people don't really like to talk about it, but in 19, I think it was like 1991, uh, the Bulls finally beat the Pistons in the Eastern Conference Finals. And, you know, it was kind of because the, the Pistons were over the hump. They, they had kind of gotten their, their prime out of the way, or they, the end of the prime kind of ended in those championships, and they were, they were old and beaten down a little bit. So they finally beat them, but of course that leads to the famous Detroit walk-off, and one of the all-time documentary moments was where Jordan was watching Isaiah's like, explanation of it, and you could just tell the pure, absolute hatred that Michael Jordan had for Isaiah Thomas. He had a lot of like grudges throughout this entire thing, but I think number one overall, if like Michael Jordan had to draft the people he hated the most, number one would be Isaiah Thomas. I mean, that was painted, obviously, such a bad light. It was a terrible move. And then Isaiah Thomas trying to like play it off as, oh, other people did it before or something like that. I think the real crux of it is when the Bulls were getting eliminated all the time, they would shake the you know Pistons' hands and everything like that. So if there was maybe a history of like the Bulls being disrespectful to the Pistons, then it wouldn't really matter. But the Pistons just kind of came out of nowhere. It was sore losers. And that really, really set off the, the Isaiah Thomas controversy for not only this, but Dream Team and everything of that nature too. First point, first and foremost, Isaiah Thomas is one of the greatest point guards of all time. No taking that away at all. Um, and then, you know, on top of that, I think there's, kind of just deeper roots to the rivalry, you know, Isaiah being a Chicago native. Um, and, and I saw every time he laced them up in his hometown, you know, he was all about it. And then Jordan coming into the league, Jordan was the king of Chicago. So him being a Chicago native, he's like, wait a minute. Like before Jordan came in the league, I was the, the biggest thing that Chicago basketball fans loved. Just being the native, they rooted for the Pistons, this, that, the other. Um, you know, I even think he made comments that his like little cousin or nephew was like wearing Jordan's shirts and jerseys and that's like little things like that. Um, and on top of that, there's just the classic changing of the guard of the NBA and in the eighties Lakers Celtics battling it out. And then, you know, the Celtics became the premier team or sorry, the Pistons became the premier team. Um, and they put the Bulls through some battles, but you know, the Bulls and Jordan specifically Without them, there is no Michael Jordan that we know today. I mean, mm. they they made him the way he was. He had to get better. They had to adjust. Um, you know, I think that, I mean, even though they were older at that time, they still were a really, really good team that had a chance to win a championship. Uh, so I won't take that away from them. The Bulls just were ready. You know, they were built for it. Uh, you know, their whole year was built to – you know it's almost like that was bigger than winning a championship for them it was like if we can beat the Pistons then we can beat anybody in the league um so you know that's important to note when it comes to the handshake thing which leads to a lot of other I think just deep-rooted resentment I go back to a really good point that Bill Simmons made um that in the 80s back then you know fans would storm the court all the time in clinching games. <laughs> Definitely that wouldn't happen today, but it was a common occurrence, especially in Boston and, and, you know, all that. Um, so back then, all, a lot of the time, 
the opposing team would leave the floor a little bit early so they don't get caught in the hysteria. Um, but I think the problem, though, was it's like in, in this instance, Detroit was at home. Their fans were going to storm the court. And, of course, Bill Lambeer was the one who was like, hey, let's, let's walk Get out of here, yeah. Um, and, and, you know, I think it was funny because, like, when you see the clip, it's a famous clip, you know, Isaiah kind of walks by the bench and puts his head down. You know, so I think there is a little bit of, uh, in my opinion, you don't do that. You know, you're at home, you lose. I get it. It's emotional. It's kind of symbolizing the end of a run. But shoot, for years you had Jordan going up to all those guys that he hates and hates competing against and, and giving them love. And uh, even if it's fake love, you know, hey, good job, move on. Uh, and, and on top of that, uh, you know, you had, uh, uh, even guys like Larry Bird and, and Kevin McHale and those guys, when they lost to the Pistons, you know, they'd shake hands and walk off the floor and at least, you know, give their due diligence. I wondered deep, deep down, uh, if, if they could go back and do it again. And, uh, you know, Isaiah's even said it recently, if I knew it would be this big of a thing, you know, I would shake hands, um, shoot, even shake hands and, and, and walk off the floor after, but, you know, it makes for great conversation and great debate. And, you know, it leads to, to this, keep them off the dream team and everything. But uh, I mean, who knows, but, but at the end of the day, those Pistons teams were unbelievable in, in, in just the, the physicality they brought to the league and, and, and sometimes dirtiness they brought to the league. I mean, really to set the tone for um, how tough the eighties were and, and even to a certain extent, you know, the early nineties. Yeah, yeah, definitely. It, the the early '90s was, I I had this argument too, or I've I've had this take, and I I hate the you can't drop LeBron in the '90s because they're gonna hit him and like he'll be sad when LeBron's frame is actually completely built for that. Um, so I I, I I've never been a fan of that. I also the nineties and the current stage of NBA defense has, it's been the huge argument between eras is like this, this era is soft. They're just different. They're both really difficult. Like this era is a lot more technical based, a lot more scheme based, a lot more like kind of matchup based. And you know, in in the nineties, it was, Hey, we're just going to beat you up. Not saying that one's better than the other. I'm just saying that, you know, to say, oh, LeBron wouldn't have been able to adapt or anything like that. I'm sure both people would be able to adapt. And I don't know if that makes defense harder. Physically, maybe, but you have to think about it. A lot of zone defenses and and double teaming and things of that nature were not exactly – I think that they were not only restricted, but they were rarely ever used. It was a lot of man-to-man. It was a lot of you come into the paint, we're going to hit you, we're going to knock your head off, which – Sure, it has its value. It worked for, for a good amount of time, but it's not exactly something that great basketball minds can't get around, as shown by Michael Jordan. So I, I've always found that those debates interesting. But, you know, obviously we've talked about the dream team. We talked about Isaiah keeping off of it. In the next episode, it was kind of labeled, we're at five right now, so we're about halfway through. It was kind of labeled as the Kobe Bryant episode. I wouldn't say that there was a lot of Kobe. It was kind of like the first 10 minutes touched on it, the 1998 All-Star game. I think it was great to see that they had a bond and that they were, you know, close and they were kind of competing each other. And Kobe saying, hey, 
you know, we don't want to have these debates. Everything I have is from him. I thought that was an awesome addition. But this was really the, the dream team episode. This was him traveling overseas. This is him pretty much making basketball a global sport. Obviously, him alongside all of these superstars. Um, I thought it was great. We got to see some footage from possibly the greatest basketball game ever played. Uh, when it comes to that dream team scrimmage, I mean, you have to think somebody somewhere out there is sitting on that footage, and there's a reason why we haven't seen it. Like, that has to be some of the greatest trash talking, greatest scoring defense. I mean, think about the players that were on that court and how hard they were working because sure there were no fans or anybody cheering them on, but I think that just made it more personal. It was a who's better competition. And as we could see with Mike and people in the nineties, that was a huge deal. So I thought it was really cool to get kind of more of an inside look at, at that because they are like the dream team. Just the name is one of the biggest talking points and not just like basketball history, but sports history. And so I thought it was really cool to see kind of the, the inside of that and get some footage from not only their playing, but their experience and their, um, the Tony Kukoc storyline as well, I thought was a, kind of a new layer we haven't seen with a dream team. Yeah, I mean, the first piece of that, it was cool to see, you know, the Kobe uh, dynamic. And, you know, I don't think people truly realized how good of a relationship that they had. Um, and how close they really were. You know, I think people were, were maybe truly realized that at his memorial when, when Jordan spoke. And, and, and you know, I think a lot of people were surprised about that. Um, but, you know, you saw the beginning of that relationship, uh, you know, in that 98 All-Star game. I thought it was great having that locker room footage of, you know, him talking about, oh, well, Laker boy's going to take all the shots and he's going to try and go one-on-one. Um, you know, that was cool to see. I really like seeing, too, in the locker room where you had Larry Bird as a coach, Magic Johnson in there, and Jordan, and they're just kind of chopping it up, giving each other a hard time. That was really cool to see. Um, and then you look back on that All-Star game roster, and you, and you see some of the guys who were, who were All-Stars in that 90, 98 All-Star team. So that was pretty neat to see. Um, the Dream Team, though, you know, I think that is what, like when you talk about, for me personally, like in the GOAT conversation, what separates Jordan from anyone else is how he made it a global game. And he did that through the dream team with everyone on that team, him being, you know, the face of the team. Um, but I mean, that just opened the door for the world to see Michael Jordan and the world to see NBA basketball. And, and then of course, you know, the endorsement side of things, uh, changing the game too with the Jordan brand, with with uh, uh, you know Gatorade or whatever you, whatever endorsement he had. I mean, combine all those factors, and that just uh, elevates him in you know the greatest of all time. Not even talking about playing, just just changing the game of basketball. But that Dream Team footage, you know, there's a documentary that they did years back on NBA TV that that had pretty similar footage, nothing extra, but. It's interesting to note when they were getting ready to go to play in the Olympics, they played a team of college uh, all-stars. Bobby Hurley was on that team. uh, And they defeated the dream team in that scrimmage. And, you know, that kind of set the tone for everyone. Like, okay, like we need to get after it and, 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 you know, not take it lightly. Because prior to that, it was all college players going to play in the Olympics and all these, uh, you know, international events. 
Um, so they really wanted to have a NBA presence there. And, and obviously they dominated. Uh, the Tony Kukoc factor was funny just because Krause was talking so much about this kid they drafted a couple of years ago who hadn't come over yet. And, um, you know, which is funny that Jordan and Pippen were like, listen, we got this kid. No one else to worry about guarding him. Like, we're going to take care of him. Um, and, and, but they also kind of found some respect for him, too. When they played him a second time, it was like, okay, like, this kid's not, you know, backing, backing down. down from him. Yeah. He's going he's gonna to compete. You know, I think Jordan showed more kudos to him in the documentary. Pippen hated him. Pippen was on the record. Yeah, he was talking about after the game, like, oh, he could never play. In I mean, imagine if that happened now. Imagine if somebody was talking about a draft pick in the Olympics. Oh, they like, like they can never play. They were, they would never be good enough. Uh, so yeah, dream team. I, this was definitely the first episode where they started showing Michael on like a huge global scale. All the endorsements want to be like Mike, everything of that nature. They really showed his like rise. Uh, but then this was also the first episode where they really kind of showed the first public backlash that he truly faced. And that was the, uh, refusal to publicly endorse, uh, Harvey Grant. Uh, when it comes to U.S. Senate. Now, this is such an interesting topic because you could definitely see it from his perspective where, hey, more power to him. He said, that's not something that I'm educated on. That's not something that I'd like to you know, publicly endorse. He said he still donated to him. But then you also look at you know, who he was running against and you know, the, the implications of that. You can really understand why people were like, dude, you just got to endorse this guy. Like, um, the Republicans buy shoes too. That is just one of the all time. I said that as a joke, but now it's completely taken out of context, uh, lines ever. I think he said he said it like joking around on the bus or something. Uh, but I, I thought it was, this was the first kind of episode where they showed something that was really negative towards Jordan. And I, I really enjoyed that. He didn't just do like as far away from like a true documentary as this was, and it was more like a storytelling, which was still incredible and a great viewing experience. There, there should be some credit given to Jordan to where he did explore some of the darker sides, which also comes in the next episode as well. But for this, I thought it was really interesting how he talked about why he didn't publicly endorse Gant and why he didn't you know, really uh, want to. So I, I found that respectable because he said, hey, that's just not something that I'm educated on, which is something I think more people need to do now. Um, so I thought that was really interesting. Yeah. I mean, I totally understand his perspective, especially back then, you know, you didn't have many people in the athletic world coming out and talking about those things. Um, I mean, Charles Barkley, I'm not a role model. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. So it wasn't a thing. Uh, it made sense for him logically too, because it was a North Carolina guy. Uh, you know, it was a North Carolina political race. Uh, and, and, uh, obviously the guy that he was running against was, uh, you know, historically looking back at it is not on the right side of history in many ways. Um, so everything lines up for, for him to, you know, publicly endorse and do all that. And, and, you know, former, uh, community organizer, Barack Obama, uh, made a good point, uh, as he was described in his description in that episode, uh, kind of talking about, you know, I thought it was neat to see President Obama talk about him and in, in, in the light of himself personally. He wished back then that, that Jordan, you know, was more public about it. But he also was understanding of the position he was in, and no one really was coming out like that. Now, if you look at 
uh, if you do research and you look at uh, you know the the donations that that Jordan's made politically, he's made a lot of political donations. It's not public, but you know he donates money, and you know people choose to do that, and, and you know that's their way of expressing you know their support of a candidate. But yeah, you know it was interesting to, to see him kind of talk about that and, and to hear his perspective on things, and and um, you know like you said. Well, he was like, I, I wasn't completely educated on it, so I'm not going to put, you know, put, put a, a full public endorsement behind it. And, and, you know, on top of that, too, uh, you know, he, he, uh, the Republican by Senator C comment, again, people don't realize maybe until they watch the document, that was just an off the cuff, him at the back of the bus with the boys, mm-hmm. like, you know, hey, Mike, how come you aren't doing this? And, and you know, it might have been a joke. But at the same time, too, from a business perspective, like he's not wrong. It's well. true. Like it, it is true. Yeah. No. I. It, it, it's definitely. It's definitely one of those things where it's like I don't think either side is a hundred percent right. There's definitely middle ground when it comes to talking about that. And uh, that that exploration of the darker side leads to episode six. Uh, this is the one that kind of dissects the Jordan rules. That that Sam Smith book that we mentioned earlier. Um, talk about his gambling kind of the first introduction we have uh to his gambling and you know the the darker side of his competitiveness as well and you know how also that three-peat you know had him exhausted had him feeling like isolated how he had to stay in his room he hated going out and this was kind of the first hints of yeah he was he was running out of gas you know he was coming off of that dream team that that olympic summer He'd already won two straight. He was going for his third. I mean, he was even talking about it back then. Hey, I, I, I want to retire. Like, I want to be done with it. So I thought that that was really interesting. Uh, and then, of course, that leads to the Horace Grant thing as well, which after the fact, after the documentary has come out, Horace Grant has said a lot when it comes in regards with that. He was on a radio show talking about how, obvi- like, he wasn't the only snitch about how Michael was snitching as well. Uh, when it came to the, uh, the eighties stuff, how, you know, the way that he treated his teammates, like a lot of these arguments about Mike not being a great teammate and stuff has, has come from this episode with the Jordan rules. So I thought the dark side was, was great. I thought the gambling problem has been severely overblown. I mean, if he has millions of dollars, $10,000 him is $10 to us. Like it's hard for, for, for people who aren't betting that type of money to kind of grasp, but for him, it wasn't that big of a deal, and he never really, like, it was never like, oh, man, like, Michael Jordan is broke, and, and no, it's always just been Michael Jordan's been gambling on the side, but what did, what did you think of the, the dive into the Jordan rules and kind of the takes on that, and then, of course, um, you know, the gambling and the, the, the exhaustion, I guess, the human nature that we saw of, of Mike in episode six? Yeah, you know, I think with the Jordan rules, it's, one, it's a pretty interesting read, and there's a lot of more stuff that you can dive into from that book. Um, and it's incredible because it comes from Sam Smith, who's been a Bulls insider forever. Um, and before that, he was a you know private investigator. So, you know, he has all the, the tricks of the trade to, to get information. And, you know, the reality is that in every line of, of uh, professional sports and media, I mean, everyone has, like, players talk to guys off the cuff. People have their sources. Um, you know, I think it was really interesting word selection from Horace Grant because, you know, Michael Jordan was like, I'm Horace was a snitch. We all know it. 
Forrest Grant, who publicly has a really good relationship with Sam Smith, you know, he said, I didn't say anything to Sam Smith. Yeah. So, you know, that, that was really good word, you know, selection, selective uh, word usage by him, um, which, which leads to a, you know, a conversation we can have later about, you know, kind of after the fact reactions from players and stuff. Um, so the Jordan rules, I mean, it showed that the media was all over them. And at the end of the day, like when you're on top of the mountain, like people are trying to knock you off the mountain and mm-hmm. it might even be your own media trying to create buzz and stories and, and everything. And, um, you see it all the time in pro sports, you know, where the, the, the media, sorry, the, the front office or the ownership is leaking stuff out to the media so they can create a narrative maybe for the fans to, to maybe reason with decisions being made or whatever it is. Um, so I think you see that a lot more often than you think, especially now in the public world of social media. But uh, when it comes to the, uh, the gambling side of things, you know, everyone knows that, that, you know, Jordan doesn't walk away from the table, you know, and, and uh, you know, that's a competitive edge that he just does not lose no matter what he's doing. Uh, I'm glad he didn't shy away from it. Um, I think it was really, really good to hear him talk about it. Um, it, it is interesting that he was dealing with some, some uh, shady characters, but I believe him when he says like, I was just gambling with him. I didn't know. Like, who was that? The slim. Okay, first of all, if you're playing golf with some dude named Slim, like, yeah, yeah you're doing some shady stuff, man. I'm sorry. Yeah. Yeah. Name was sl- Come on, man. I mean, all time cool name. The guy looked super cool. Uh, but that that was definitely a fun part of the the funny part of the gambling side. But yeah, I I kind of agree with you. I mean, I guess it, it's always kind of painted as a problem. And, you know, maybe there's some conspiracy theories around it as well. But when you really think about the amount of money he was making, it, it was truly just a competitive thing. Oh, for sure. For sure. And, and you know, kind of expanding off of that after he, you know, won those championships and, and you know, played those extra games, you know, in the Olympics and preparing for that and the practice leading. I mean, that's a lot of wear and tear on your body. And, on top of that, too, quite frankly, uh, you know, I think he was at a point where he looked around the league and he was like, I've beaten everybody. Like, I have no, no challenge. There's no challenges for me. So I think when he truly did decide to retire on top of his father's passing, uh, you know, all those factors combined, it made sense, you know. And, and, you know, I don't believe in the conspiracies of, you know, David Stern told him he had to be suspended. Because a couple things, you know, which this this leads in episode seven and eight, which is the baseball and, and Jordan dad thing. So yeah, definitely. So yeah, it's 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 just to me, it's just too too big of a reach. Um, interesting that someone would leave at the top of, in the peak of their game, but uh, uh, yeah, I mean, it, it, it's it's one of those things where it, it made sense to me why he was ready for that next challenger or something new yeah it it's so difficult with me because part of me looks at the retirement after the three-peat and i i don't like how sometimes it's spun into like a positive like if, if you're painting it like like honestly he retired when he was at the top of his game and if lebron or somebody else did that then 
we, we wouldn't be painting it positively to go to go play. Like if LeBron retired to go play football, it wouldn't be good for his basketball argument. You know, for Michael, that just turns into, oh, is he, would he have won eight straight? Like it's never like a negative thing with him. So I have no problem with him doing it. I just, I kind of have a problem with it being painted as like this great thing. I mean, obviously he wanted to be competitive in something else, but I, 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 I've always taken a little bit of heedance when it comes to the, Oh man, like he would have won a trade. It's like, he was exhausted. I mean, like he retired. I don't know if we could chalk that up to like Mike, like, Oh, Mike's the goat. Cause he retired like in the middle of his career. Like I, I, again, I understand why. I mean, with the father thing, being exhausted and isolated. I mean, I think part of the reason why he wanted to go play baseball as well was he wanted to be somebody different. Like he didn't want to be this guy that everybody was afraid of. Like, again, he was crying when he was talking about like how hard he went to push people. He wanted to get away from something else, but he goes to baseball. I think we've all had this collective memory of Michael Jordan sucking in baseball. Right. But you know, when he talked about it, he, he, he did well, he improved. He had some good moments. I do think though, it, it couldn't have been a long-term thing for Michael Jordan because Michael Jordan's mindset, I don't think translates to baseball. Okay. His mindset does, but his actions like baseball, you can't go out there every single day and hit a ball a thousand times. Like you shoot a thousand jump shots. Simply your body can't handle it. Your, your hands are going to get too raw and too numb. Like it's not a good thing for you to go overboard all the time, you know? So I feel like that could have caught up with him, but I, I, I definitely thought it was interesting to kind of see, he wasn't even allowed to go to the proper level of play. He had to go to double A because of how much media needed him. And he was still able to adjust to that. So I definitely enjoyed, you know, the, a deep dive into that decision. I definitely understood his decision to retire more. I still don't want to say, Oh, it was like a great thing. I don't want to be like, Oh, like that's like, Oh, he retired and like came back. But you know, he, um, he definitely has, you know, created this path that we talk about kind of normally. But if you think about anybody else doing it, it would be the craziest thing ever. Like, again, imagine if LeBron or like, imagine if Kobe retired to play soccer for three years over in Europe and then came back or, or something of that nature. So I thought that was really, really interesting. I, I, I didn't, I mean, I knew how close he was to his dad. I, I liked the deep dive into that. Um, I like how Ahmad Rashad just pops up every once in a while. I thought that was hilarious. Like, like I, as a sports journalism major. Just relationship, greatest yeah. relationship between a media member and an athlete. And it worked because, you know, everyone knew. Like, right. Jordan oh, there was, was not a secret. Like, Jordan was going to give him the access and, and you know, it was going to be a good deal. Um, but Rashad still asked those hard questions. I mean, in that, the, 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 the interview that Mike had his glasses on where it was a, a mod – uh, you know, everything. He, he wasn't backing away. He still asked him some tough questions. So all, all credit to them for making it work. Plus, Ahmad Rashad is like one of the all-time never aging guys. I mean, he played football in like the 70s. And he looked, <laughs> and, and he looked like he could, he looked like, an, like a 20-year-old when he was interviewing Mike. And that was 20 years after his playing career. Yeah, he's, he's awesome. He's one of the greats. It's, it's always fun to hear his perspective. And it was fun to hear him uh, in the documentary and, and, and even see him on some of the uh, different media outlets over the past couple of weeks and talking about everything. Um, you know, the baseball thing, I think is fascinating. You know, I think it just showed his true competitive nature. Um, it's interesting that, I mean, I don't think they were maybe kissing his butt, but you have someone like Terry Francona, who, I mean, world series manager. Uh, yeah. Talk about a weird meeting of people. Like, you never, yeah, we've yeah. never thought those two people would have crossed paths at some point. Uh, yeah. So, you know, he firmly believes that that Jordan would have made 
a big league roster eventually based on his play. He's, you know, people say he probably wouldn't have been an all-star, probably wouldn't have been a, you know, a top-tier player, but could have, could have played, which is It's also easy impressive. to say in retrospect, you know. Yes, yes, yes. Um, but pretty impressive for someone to make the switch after not playing, you know, baseball for so many years. I mean, pretty impressive. Uh, it was good he came back to basketball, though. <laughs> yeah, and I mean, Reinsdorf also, you know, Reinsdorf kept paying him uh, his basketball salary. And he also said, he agreed with Francona that said Jordan probably could have found his way to the majors. Um, and, you know, he, he did enjoy playing it, you know. He, he, he's quoted saying, like, sure, I was this big icon, but they treated me as I wanted to be treated, just one of the guys. He didn't have to carry this team. He wasn't, like, this unnatural superhuman. So I think he really enjoyed that. But as soon as he got a taste of basketball again, as soon as he got invited back to practice and, uh, you know, played one-on-one a little bit, like, people were even saying, like, the air was different when Michael Jordan was in that practice after taking a break. So – when he came back, he was, he was ready to go. And this was also an episode that kind of attacked Jordan's fear factor when it came to his, um, to his opponents. This episode and then also episode eight, which we can dive into now as well, really jumped into the practice, Jordan. This is veteran Jordan. This is I've been there. I've done that, Jordan. Um, and, yeah, he was uh, – uh, I mean, a bully is probably the, the correct term to put it. I know that's kind of like negative terms, but he was really out there. And, I mean, some people earned his respect, like Steve Kerr, who he got into a fight with. Um, some people didn't earn his respect, like a Horace Grant, which was in the earlier 3P. Um, but, you know, B.J. Armstrong is on the record saying, he was he a nice guy? He wasn't nice really but you know that was just the mentality that he had he was a difficult guy to be around if you didn't truly love the game of basketball uh that's a quote from bj armstrong so you know this really laid into a lot of his relationships with his teammates which again i was i was impressed that he went in but you have to imagine if this is what he agreed to let go on air there has to be more off air as well yeah and, and you know i think bj also said at one point it might have been in the same breath you know it was like he couldn't be a nice guy like yeah his, his, like his role you know leading the team and their perspective like that I think guys like BJ and, and and those guys know like that was one the way he's wired and two he he just couldn't not be the way he was um so that was cool to see the inside you know I think two he was seeing who he could push and how he could push them uh, you know, someone like a Steve Kerr, it, it turned into like total respect. Like, all right, man, like I, I got you. We're on the same page, you know. And and uh, Scott Burrell, you know, twentieth pick, I believe, in the draft, and they got him in '97 or '98, whenever it was. And you know, his thing was, I need to make them ready for when their their number is called when we need them and you know Burrell had like 20 points in like the, I think the first round series against uh New Jersey or whoever it was so he was pushing those guys to get them ready obviously all those guys performed to a certain extent you know Will Purdue was another guy that he pushed pretty hard and on the record you know he like punched him in, in practice as well um and Will Purdue was pretty forthcoming in the documentary he was like yeah he was he was a jerk but but you know it worked and we won and and but again it goes back to us talking at the very beginning like it's not for right, everybody yeah. you know? Not everybody leads the same way, but it was cool to kind of get the insight. I was expecting it, quite honestly, to be worse. Uh, 
by the way they were building he's, he up said everything. he said people are gonna see me as a bad guy but i i mean i think that he was painted as people kind of knew like everybody knew that he was kind of this way so yeah and that was part of the thing that I, when i was saying i didn't feel like i learned anything new like i was really looking for this new revelation of how he treated people or whatever especially when he came out and said people are gonna think i'm a bad guy but i think he just he kind of stayed the same and you know, we don't have to talk too much about the bullying of teammates and everything like that. We talked about that earlier. So let's jump actually into 9 and 10. Uh, this is really, I guess, the Utah couple of episodes. They tackled um, they tackled the Pacers for a little bit. They gave them their, their just due. And this actually – this is a question that Nick, uh, my co-host, he, he wanted to talk about. So shout out to him. Uh, which is, who is the greatest player that Michael Jordan ever beat? Was it that Reggie Miller and the Pacers? Was it Carl Malone? Was it John Stockton? I think personally, I'm going to go with, like, I'm not just talking like career-wise because sure, he beat uh, like some people, but some were at the end of the career, some weren't. I'm going to go with that, that peak Suns Charles Barkley. I think that's like the best player that he ever stopped from getting a ring. Um, just the way that he was playing. I mean, they showed it in the series. They were going to head-to-head, and Barkley was putting up like 45, 10, and 10, and Jordan was putting up 48, 10, and 10. Like, it was truly a, a battle of, you know, the ages, and I really do think that, that Barkley was at his peak the best player that Michael Jordan never stopped from getting a ring. But in, in your opinion, is, is, do you agree? Do you think it's somebody else? Uh, what are your thoughts on that? Well, I think there's a whole host of, of, of guys you can pick from, obviously. I think... I hope if any if any narratives changed, it's that you know Jordan didn't defeat a bunch of plumbers or whatever people say. Like right. he, the league was good, you know, and and he beat some good teams. And 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 on the flip side of that, teams on the west west coast were beating other good players, you know, and and uh, yeah, you know. Well, I think it's just the the way the NBA is today. It's it was top heavy. Like there, are, there, are, there are quotes that say the NBA was watered down from people back then, but it's the same thing people are saying now, which is it's why I had such a problem when people talking about parody with the Golden State Warriors and everything. It's like nobody was preaching parody in the '90s. Like it, it, it was what it was. It, there was really good players on really good teams, but like there was a really steep drop off when it came from like the top teams in each conference, and then after that, it wasn't that great. So, but when when you get to the finals, when you get to that point, you are playing incredibly good players yeah. so yeah um but to go back to the question that i honestly don't have a good answer for you i i think it's it's kind of pick who you think you know charles barkley right. was phenomenal in that year that Suns team was really good they had injuries throughout that that postseason which i think could have changed some things during that year um you look at uh the supersonic team they played they were a good team. You know, I think there were some matchup things they could have done differently maybe to alleviate, you know, how that could have gone. Who knows? Um, you know, and, and those Utah Jazz teams were really good. And, and Stockton and Malone played a number of more years after that and, and, and were still playing at a pretty good level. Um, so, I don't know. Reggie Miller took them to – you know, as as far as you can take them, and and uh, Ewing has had the unfortunate. Really uh, Ewing's been unfortunately matched up against Jordan since college, man. Uh, yeah, yeah. And those Knicks teams in the early '90s, I mean, they were they were tough. I mean, there's a lot of of, of different ways. I mean, it's pick your preference, really. I think, but also too going back, you know, in the uh, uh, timeline a little bit when when Jordan was out of of uh basketball i and i'm as big of a jordan guy as you'll get but i don't know if they would have beaten 
the Houston Rockets. I don't oh, absolutely. They would have beaten, you know, it's impressive that they were able to, when Jordan came back halfway through or even more than that, and, and, and they played the Magic. That Magic team was better than that. They were missing yeah. an inside presence. Horace Grant was gone. Jordan, people say Jordan wasn't, you know, in basketball mode. Listen, Michael Jordan was still Michael. Jordan right. He played for, he played, he played he like the entire blunders, game. Yeah. Like it wasn't like he was playing 20 minutes a game. He was playing the entire game. Like he was playing like 40 minutes a game. Um, I actually, so I actually answered another one of the questions on these Twitter videos that I've been putting out um, was would Michael have won eight straight? And I, I think it's an absolutely not. I mean, you look at how exhausted he was, not after the end of the back-to-back, let alone after the three-peat. Plus, I mean, let's say he makes it to the finals. He beats the Knicks. He, he goes on, and he's going to be playing Hakeem. Like, the Bulls are a terrible matchup for the Rockets. Hakeem would have absolutely eaten. So, I, I, uh, sure, I, maybe he still would have won six. I don't think it would have been in the form of uh, a three-peat and then a three-peat or all straight. I think they would have been scattered up. So, I, I, I'm 100% with you there. I don't think he would have won eight straight I don't think he would have continued to win he was just I mean obviously it showed us he was exhausted and kind of lucky to avoid the terrible matchup that was Hakeem yeah no it it would have been interesting you know I think it uh it would have made for some some good series um but you know that two-year run that Houston had uh the Bulls were just missing you know, they didn't have Rodman. Longley was, was serviceable, but Horace Grant was a big difference maker on, on those teams. And, and, you know, they were really lacking that. Um, the year Jordan was gone, too, I mean, the Bulls were pretty dang good, all things considered, without Mike. You know, that's the conference the, finals. Yeah, so, so you know, they lost the, the – um, you know, there was a controversial series against uh, – uh, New York, one of those years, and and um, and that was Pippen the Pippin sit out. That was the Pippin sit out yeah. game against Kukoc with with Kukoc. So, uh, it it, it 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 definitely, yeah. I don't think he would have won eight straight. Or it, it, I'm not saying he wouldn't have gotten his rings, but they would have come in a different way if he didn't choose to retire that first time. Um, we talked about the Supersonics a little bit. Great moment was real quick. Just Gary Payton talking about stuff and Michael Jordan responding to it. I thought that was hilarious, saying that the glove was no problem. Um, it's a little bit confusing why Peyton didn't guard Jordan the entire series. Uh, but uh, a couple more things, and I think we've, we've covered mostly everything. Um, the way that Jordan just made up grudges out of thin air was hilarious. LeBradford Smith was oh God, so – that guy was enjoying his life, and then this documentary came out, and he, now he's well, he probably like honestly, he was probably like, "Oh, thank God," because he was probably thinking like, "Why the hell did Michael Jordan hate me so much?" It's like I never even said anything to him, and then he kind of like came, finally came out and said, "Yeah, he didn't say anything." Um, the, so that was really funny. It just kind of showed that you know he he could latch onto anything to motivate himself, and he really did. He didn't need the motivation; he could just create it, you know. Um, but you know, the Utah, they talked about Steve Kerr, kind of Steve Kerr's family and everything of that nature. I thought that was a really cool tie in. I'm not, I, I'm usually not a fan of let's just put tragedy in for the sake of tragedy, but I think it did tie in well and gave Steve Kerr kind of his moment, uh, which was cool because he deserves his moment. He's been around, uh, forever. And again, he's kind of like, he's kind of like the Phil Jackson of the current era, you know, he had playing 
he had playing success. You know, he wasn't an all-star superstar, but he, he was part of a championship team playing, came up, started coaching, coached like this dynasty, was able to manage, like Kevin Durant, as we've seen, is not an easy person to manage, like emotionally. Steph, Clay, like Draymond, like managing all of that was insane. And he's kind of stepped into that role for this generation. So it's really cool to see how he, he kind of got coached by Phil. And now he's, he's not exactly the same, but he has a very similar career path so you know we talked the last couple episodes is really just kind of highlighting all right he got over that final hump with Utah and then they didn't really explore anything after that it was the Bulls let everybody go they chose to to rebuild I I was a little bit skeptical at the end when Jordan was like everybody would have come back and played I'm not too sure about that like I think that it's it's nice to say that in theory that everybody would have come back and everything would have been perfect, but with the situation that it was, I mean, just the way that Kraus and Reinsdorf managed everything, I don't think that it would have been a happy-go-lucky return for that season. So, I mean, like I said, Phil Jackson was offered the job. He said no. Like, I, I don't think that people would have been back. So, I, I, I that sentiment ending on that, I, I'm like, oh, all right, that's a little bit forcing your own will there and making the Bulls look bad, but... When it was over, I mean, I was sad, but I was definitely very satisfied. I felt like they delivered well on, you know, the promise. It gave us something in quarantine to really latch onto, which I think was part of its huge success as well. Um, but I still stand by. I wish there's a little bit more new information, but there was a lot of detail that was awesome and a lot of storytelling that was awesome. And this is now something that you can have in that bank that in 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 years, you could show people who love basketball and it, it, they will get a good idea of what this guy meant to basketball and to society and to the world. So I really enjoyed that. And I think it's laid the groundwork for so many more documentaries that we are going to get in the future, not just from guys in the past, but guys that are from the current LeBron, Kevin Durant, Steph, like we are going to get a lot of these documentaries in the future. And now we kind of have the groundwork laid for it, which is awesome. Yeah, you know, overall it was it was really well done, and, and it was good for us to see all of that. You know, I think uh, I think they could have come back for one more year, you know, and and but and the reason I say that, the reason I think they 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 could have come back and they would have won, was what would have helped them was the lockout. Yeah, you know, they would have been rested. Um, I think they could have made one more run, but they would have faced a problem. Jordan's hand. uh, You remember Jordan cut his hand on that cigar? Yeah. 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 So he's done that a couple times in his life. (laughs) Yeah. Um, uh, But they would have run into, uh, you know, a a, a peak David Robinson and an emerging Tim Duncan, Mm -hmm. uh, a really good Spurs team. And a really Uh, bad matchup for the So an interesting matchup. Um, that would have been interesting to see. I think they were talented enough to, to, you know, make it one more run. But then if you're playing revisionist history, uh, Steve Kerr wouldn't have been on the Spurs then at that point. either. And then the year after that, you know, would have Phil gone to the Lakers, but by then the league was changing and and you clearly saw that they were, they were running on fumes in 98. You know, I think Jordan was exhausted. Uh, Rodman and those guys, Pippen physically couldn't do it. Um, as, as much as they could. Um, they were just battling a lot. I mean, they were, they were giving their all for, you know, years and years and years. So 
it was just the changing of the guard. It was the right time for them to leave. It was yeah. the right, you know, you know, the competitive factor in, in those guys were like, yeah, we could have done it, but you know, reality it, is different than that competitive factor. And I think that that was part of the reason why Kraus wanted to rebuild. I think that in the, in this excerpt that I mentioned earlier with Horace Grant and all of that, and, or, and Jerry Kraus like taking care of all his players and Scottie Pippen and all of that nature, he was talking about he refused to let the Bulls be the 80s Celtics that held on too long and ended up, you know, going into the 90s and not being able to put together a great team. Now, of course, part of that is due to the tragedies involving the players that they drafted and the death and the drugs and everything of that nature. But he refused to let himself be part of, like, we held on for too long. I think he might have let that take a little bit too much control over him. And he was like, you're done after this year, no matter what. But I understand where he was coming from because a lot of times you do hold on to the, these players for too long and they put you in a bad position. So unfortunately they weren't able to capitalize on that ending, but you know, they got what they could. I mean, obviously the bulls, you know, one of the greatest franchises ever solely because of this run in the nineties. I mean, it is kind of crazy to think that if they didn't have Michael Jordan and Scottie Pippen, the Bulls would be looked at maybe like a team like the Suns. They've had good teams, but never really had true championship level success. So it's kind of crazy to think about it in that nature, but a really fun conversation, really fun talking to you, Coach Ramirez, this bonus episode of the Rick and Nick show. Again, Nick wasn't able to make it, but a really fun deep dive in the last dance, uh, you know, talking about everything from the actual stuff that was happening in the documentary to the connotations that were around it, what happened afterwards. And now that we're removed about it, we're letting it sink in and it's going to be fun. I'm sure that at some point we're going to get some sort of bonus episode or extra footage. So you can look out for that. Coach Ramirez, anything you want to plug at the end of this? Uh, anything that people can be on the lookout for? I know that you are now Saguaro High School's head basketball coach. I don't know if people can follow that Twitter account and support that. Just let the people know what they can do to support uh, Lucas Ramirez. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, we're excited to, to get started at Saguaro. You know, everyone stay safe out there and you know, do what's right. And before you know it, we'll be out there on, on the floor getting after it. But yeah, you know, make sure you follow our, uh, our Twitter page and, and all that. And, and, you know, we're looking forward to our first season to be a part of the Saguaro community and it, it should be a fun one to uh, keep tabs on and check out. So there we go. And there you have it. That'll do it for this bonus episode. Once again, thank you, Coach Ramirez, for coming on. And we will be back with a regular episode of Rick and Nick very soon, upcoming this week. So be on the lookout for that. But until then, guys, enjoy sports. Enjoy as much as you can. Stay healthy and stay safe. And we'll see you later.